There's a Yiddish saying that translates to how many people are there in a house? Count the number of islands on the wall. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, my name is Joe McHugh, and in July of 2017, I caught up with violinist Alicia Svagals while she was on tour, and we spent a pleasant hour discussing the violin and a unique kind of traditional Jewish music called klezmer. Here then is that conversation, beginning with Alicia playing a movement from the Berigovsky Suite, titled Lightning. I was born in the Bronx in 1963. In 1965, my family moved to the suburbs. And in 68, when I was five years old, they told me I was going to be taking violin lessons. And I studied uh, at a community music school, which was a wonderful, magical place that was founded by a couple, Janet and Ed Simons. And Ed is now 99. And in fact, I just visited him a few days ago and we played together. He's 99 years old. And after a year of Suzuki lessons, Janet, his wife, who passed away some years ago, she decided she wanted to teach me privately. So she took me on as a student. And a few years after that, I moved on to Ed. And this music school was a very warm, music-oriented place, meaning it wasn't a kind of competitive, career-oriented, or contemporary style, you know, how kids today, their parents are, you know, all over their resumes, so when they apply for college, they'll have done this and that. It was a really old-fashioned of community-oriented scene. And what was the name of the school? Did it, have any- it was called Co- the Community Music School. Perfect. And 
So I, I later figured out that the whole idea of starting me off at five playing the violin was actually a Jewish family tradition, especially Jews from Odessa, which is where my great-grandparents were from. Well, on my father's side, on my mother's side, they were from Minsk. In Odessa, the Jewish, well, it was boys, really, were all given violins when they were little, and it was, and, and they took lessons. And in fact, the great classical violinists of a certain era were Jews from Odessa. Uh, Yasha Heifetz, David Oistrach, a whole bunch of them. So they were kind of, maybe without realizing it, continuing that tradition. When I was 16, I started getting interested in other kinds of music. So I was listening to Irish fiddle playing and old-timey music and bluegrass, and eventually I found my way around to Klezmer. Well, going back to this family history, so... I mean, Odessa itself has a very troubled story in terms of uh, people's experiences. Uh, do you know much of your family's history in terms of how they came out of that part of the world and came to the United States? Well, they immigrated with the big waves of Jewish immigration to New York. And I remember hearing a story that my great-grandmother saw a headline in a, Yidd in a Yiddish newspaper while she was walking on the streets of New York that said pogroms in Odessa, and she screamed because her parents were still back there. And in fact, I don't know the rest of that story, but yeah, it was very troubled. There were pogroms in Odessa, and, uh, and Jews were victimized there. But when things were good in Odessa, they were very interesting, and there was a golden age of Odessa as well. It was a really multicultural city, and for music in particular, there were Jews, Greeks, Gypsies, Romanians, Turks, and Odessa in some ways was a birthplace of klezmer. All these different kinds of music Different sorts of music were mixing up, and musicians were playing with each other and influenced each other. And it was, in a lot of ways, it sounds like New York. New York, you know, 80 years later, 50, 80, 100 years later. And my experience of New York growing up, which was also a place where Jews, Greeks, uh, Russians, gypsies, everybody was playing together. In fact, when I graduated college, I started playing in a Greek nightclub in Astoria, and I became very obsessed with Greek violin music. And there were some places, there was a place called Cafe Mogador, which was on the Lower East Side. Well, it was called the East Village by then, uh, St. Mark's Place, 8th Street, East 8th Street. And it was owned by Moroccan Israelis, and there was a band that was composed of Armenians, Turks, Greeks. There was a, an Armenian belly dancer, and everybody would come and dance together and play together. So, you know, here are groups of people that, you know, are, were killing each other, but not musicians. M musicians formed a kind of peaceable kingdom where everybody played together and danced together, and the patrons, too. They would, everybody would come and dance together. So New York was that kind of magical place, and I think that the Odessa that my great-grandparents were from was the same sort of scene. 
when you first started playing, how did the first violin come into your hands? Was there ever a family violin that had come down through either side? Well, there were musicians in my family. So my grandfather, Phil Spiegels, he was a pianist, and he was kind of a prodigy as a child, and he went to the school when he was 14 that later became Juilliard. I believe it was the Damrush, called the Damrush Institute at that point. That's something to verify. But And he became uh, a popular music pianist. So he started out classically trained, but he was the pianist for Sid Caesar, the comedian on uh, television. When television wasn't a story of Queens, he was the pianist. He played in your show of shows, your hit parade. He was Judy Garland's accompanist when she would perform at the Palace Theater. He stopped, he quit that job because he was in love with her and he couldn't stand how she was destroying herself with uh, drugs and alcohol. This is all like family lore. I never, I knew him and he, he taught me to a certain extent, but I never knew these stories till I grew up because he died when I was 11. And actually I was quite thrilled recently, you know, these websites like Ancestry.com, they, uh, I guess I'm signed up for a couple of them, Genie.com and Ancestry. And as it seems that as census records get digitized, these sites, they must have a robot that scans them and they send me emails. And I discovered, well, through them sending them to me, uh, certain re records like the uh, Library of Congress copyright books. So I found that my grandfather had written songs that were copyrighted in 1929, 1930 for Tin Pan Alley. He co-wrote some songs with the most 1920s names. They're like, they're hysterical. Um, so he was also a songwriter. And um, my father tells me that he was the choice pianist of the Jewish gangsters. So Dutch, Dutch Schultz, the no notorious Jewish gangster, he, my grandfather, who was a very um, straight-up guy, he didn't drink, he didn't. <laughs> he was a very um, law-abiding citizen, but he was employed by these people. And he would play at the Cotton Club, and Dutch Schultz would send a limo to pick up my pregnant grandmother and, <laughs> and bring her to the club, and he would crumple up $100 bills and throw them to my grandfather in the, in the pit. So he was a colorful character, my grandfather. So he was the piano player and a songwriter. And then my mother, he, he was, my grandfather, the pianist, was my father's father. Mm -hmm. My father became a visual artist. My mother played the piano. And they both went to music and art high school in New York, which was legendary at the time. And I always wished I had gone to music and art. Later, I think it split off into music and art and the performing arts high school that was featured in the movie Fame, and now it's called LaGuardia. Uh, but they both went to it when it was music and art. He went for art, and she went for music. And, and her instrument? She played the piano. So she played the piano. Her father-in-law my grandfather played the piano. 
I guess that's the music in our family. And then they gave me a violin. And so I was asking, that first violin, you probably don't remember, it was, what, a half size or even smaller? You were five? It was an eighth size. I still have it. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, over the years, you keep progressing to a, a larger instrument. Yeah, the kids grow and the violin grows. Yeah. So when was the time that a real violin was put in your hands, a I violin was... that was exceptional, that had a character of it, that was identifiable to you? Oh, well, the music school gave me a real violin, a 19th century, let's see if I can remember this. I still have it, actually. It's, you know, it's actually a very good violin, but I've had a hard time getting it identified. And I've taken it everywhere. I've taken it to the people who do this, who identify violins in Chicago. Somebody brought it for me to London, Paris. It's from the workshop of a Neapolitan 18th century violin maker, but the label is wrong. And But I don't play this violin. It's very soft-spoken. And I recently really... Recently, given that I've been doing this my whole whole life, I had the the joy and pleasure of going out shopping for my own violin for the first time in my life, like I don't know, eight years ago, and picking one out and and buying it, and that was incredible because then I could get exactly what I want, you know, a violin that matched my voice to the extent that I could afford one. I mean, I would have loved one with you know. <laughs> That was worth 10 times as much, but I only had so much money to spend. But that's... Uh, well, this is a bit of an aside, but let's stay on this track a bit. Tell me that story of how you went uh, through the process for people who would would want to know, like, how do you... A serious musician begins to really say, I have to find this violin. Right. So let's see if I can sum this up. I realized that I was frustrated with my violin, that it didn't have the power and the punch that I wanted it to have for the way I like to play. And I have a very dear friend who I went to chamber music camp with when we were teenagers, and he's kind of a soulmate. Rohan Gregory. He lives in Boston. And we've had a kind of parallel violin career. Like, I got into Greek music, and he was getting into it at the same time, and we both got into Irish music at the same time, and then I subbed for him in his Greek band, and he subbed for me in my klezmer band. Anyway, so I've been following his career our whole lives, and he... (laughs) He has been like a morality tale. He wouldn't mind my saying this, I don't think, about around buying a violin because he's been trying to buy a violin for like 15 years. And as he goes around trying violins, I mean, he's probably tried hundreds of violins. As he gets more and more knowledgeable about violins, what he wants keeps on becoming more expensive than what he can afford. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So 
like an extra $10,000 keeps getting tacked on to what he needs, you know, in his mind's ear. It's like receding from him step by step, almost like a mirage in a way. It's like a mirage. And his wife refers to these violins that he brings home to try as his mistresses. And (laughs) he becomes enamored of one for a couple of weeks. And then he tires of that one and he moves on to the next one. So having followed the saga for years and listened to him try out the violins when he comes to New York and tries one out because he lives in Boston, I was like, oh my gosh, I am so terrified of this process. So I went to a violin maker, a violin violin repair person that I know in New York, a violin dealer rather, and he he said, try this one. And I tried it and I was like, yep, that's it. (laughs) So I think actually, now that I think about it, I don't think I really did any shopping. I, I wrote it home. I was like, this is amazing. This is exactly what I want. I think basically I was so naive and so um, kind of the opposite of my friend Rohan. Like I had so little experience trying good violins that I was very easily pleased. (laughs) I fell in love right away. I was an ingenue in the violin purchasing department. And I tried a couple of other violins from the same dealer, but none of them could measure up to that first experience of playing something I liked better than what I had been playing. And so that was it. I bought it, and I'm still really happy with it. So I was sort of like the person who falls in love with their the, their first kiss, you know? And But there's another element here. It's one I'm particularly susceptible to. I don't know if that's the right word to use, susceptible. Certainly fascinated with. And that's the whole idea of destiny. You know, do, you know, the people we wind up marrying or falling in love with, was that sort of set in play? Was there some story already going on and, you know, then we find that person under some circumstances? And the same way these violins seem to come into our hands, at least some of the people I've talked to and my own experience is that way. I tend to see it that way rather than you just took the first violin that, you know, had some quality and you said, that's good enough. <laughs> it was like you happened to go in and maybe that childlike quality, which you call being naive, but yeah. maybe it's childlike quality enables this other thing to happen. And I don't know if you'd want to address that question on a larger scale, uh, whether you ever have that feeling about life itself or the music, because I um I do, personally. I just sometimes feel that so many of these things that we touch in this music that seems to go into a deeper place. And um, I don't know, you know, that idea of destiny, do you think there's, is that a force in our lives? Is that a force in your art? Destiny. Gee, I've never thought about it. Do I believe in destiny? Destiny. I, I, you're kind of asking the wrong person because my other love in life besides music is science. And I'm kind of a science groupie. I was actually majoring in neuroscience in college. Uh, There's a Yiddish word, beshert. Beshert means destined. And uh, you're 
true, your one true love, you might call it your Beshert, your Bisherta, your destined one. And it's funny that you are, you're asking about destiny. Well, there are two reasons. Well, okay, let me back up. Let me backtrack. So on the one hand, I was saying I'm the wrong person to ask about this because of my interest in science. And I was majoring in neuroscience. I took a year and a half off from college and went hitchhiking around Europe playing on the streets. And then I returned and I changed my major to ethnomusicology. But I've always been very interested in science. And I've, I mostly tend to reject ideas that I don't think are scientific enough. But I've been reading a lot about these crazy, amazing quantum physics theories. And in particular, the idea of multiverses, of the multiverse, and that every universe that could possibly exist does. And that brings you back around full circle to the idea of a destiny, because oh, for complicated reasons, it can kind of point you to a destiny. So I, I, I can only believe in something like destiny in the context of science and quantum physics. But on the other hand, my children would laugh if they heard me say this because they think I'm obsessed with the idea of destiny and serendipity because I am always seeing patterns and coincidences everywhere. I'm always coming home and saying, you wouldn't believe this. I, w <laughs> I was just, I opened the book to the word elephant and I looked up and there was a caravan of elephants on their way to the circus <laughs> and so forth. Or I was thinking about somebody for the first time in 27 years and I looked up and there she was. And so on the one hand, I'm quite taken with the idea of destiny, serendipity, incredible coincidences. On the other hand, maybe they're all explainable because everything exists out there and this is just one of those universes where this thing happened to pen out in a way that looks extremely coincidental. Well, to bring this back to the violin, ah, I, well. I think we have, <laughs> no, I think we have this association with the violin unlike, unlike any other instrument, really, that we, we almost expect this uh, quality or this almost supernatural thing. You know, I mean, we have all the folklore goes with it, and it's obvious to a lot of people from Paganini to, you know, uh, Charlie Daniels and, you know, the whole association with the dark forces, but also the angelic forces. We spent our time recently in Italy, and so many of the basilicas we would go in or cathedrals, they would be on the ceiling, these beautiful angelic creatures playing cellos and violins. Uh, and Apollo's relationship with the violin yeah. and these kinds of things in, in the paintings from that period. So uh, that's I think somehow we see this instrument as a, a gateway or a portal to something else. And the fact it's such a fragile instrument and often the mythology, it was found in an attic. It was found in the place least expected. Yeah. I mean, that's so deeply folkloric. That's of course, true. you know, you always think it, you would find it in the best violin shop in town because they would know it's a good violin. But, you know, that's not the story we love to tell. Right. And occasionally, we do find it in the unexpected place. And it gives it a quality that I think other instruments just, we don't have that lore about them. So maybe that's part of this, too, that I'm asking about. Which is a great segue, if you don't mind. I would love to know the importance of the violin, this particular instrument, in the Jewish story. As you understand it. 
The violin is the iconic Jewish instrument. It's in in Europe it was the klezmer instrument. Now in the United States the clarinet displaced it as the main klezmer instrument. But in Europe there's a Yiddish saying that translates to how many people are there in a house? Count the number of violins on the wall. The violin was a very, very popular instrument, and that fact made its way into Chagall's paintings of Jewish life in Eastern Europe, into Shalom Aleichem's stories, which then became Fiddler on the Roof, folklore like the story of Stempenu, a charismatic violinist. Violinists, klezmer violinists, were rock stars in Jewish Eastern Europe. The violin, I think, is seen as supernatural because <laughs> it's almost like it's something that people created and then took on a life of its own because it mirrors the complexity of the human mind and heart in a way that we've surprised ourselves with. It was invented, it evolved, and now it's kind of our golem in a good way. It's uh, our musical Frankenstein, but in a nice way, not in a monster way. And It's made out of wood, which comes from trees. And I often think about this. We're very enamored now in 2016 with electronica, with simulated sound, which arises from algorithmic abstractions and I think the pendulum will eventually swing back to, back from the virtual, which is very exciting and new right now, to the real, the touchable, feelable, material world. And what people are forgetting while we're having this infatuation with this new thing, this new abstract thing, is that it is so hard to model mathematically the complexity of sound that comes out of wood, that comes out of instruments made from trees, it's bedevilingly difficult because an organic material like wood that comes from an organism like a tree, it's like a person and a person's brain, it's the pinnacle of complexity in the universe. We don't even know if there's life in any other planet in the universe. I mean, there are many theories. There, there are some who believe that there's got to be not only life somewhere, but everywhere. There are so many planets. The universe is so large that there's got to be life everywhere. There are other scientists who believe that it's a gigantic fluke and the material world became so incredibly complex here in a way that it didn't become anywhere else that we don't have the appreciation we ought to have, not only for how complex we are and our brains are, but how complex even a tree is. And because it's so complex, 
the wood which we take from it to make an instrument is incredibly complex and the sound that that instrument emits is complex enough to be our avatars. And I do feel like my violin is my avatar. It's the avatar of my voice. And for now, we can fool around with trying to mimic that kind of from the top down through math, through computer simulations, through synthesized sound, but ultimately impossible, as impossible as simulating a human being compared to building a robot or building a computer. So I think that that accounts for the magical, the mirage of magic that we see in folklore around the violin. There's something almost human about it. Not just because we humans created it, but because it comes from another organism, an organism that, granted, doesn't have a brain like we do, but is also part of the incredible complexity of biological life. There's two ideas that pop into my mind from what you're saying, and and I I agree. I, I love these ideas. We were just watching this hummingbird the other day and um, realizing its time, the span of time it lives in, is completely different than ours. Yeah. And it's so much faster. And in fact, I'm not sure of the science of this, but I do believe from what I've heard that almost every living thing, um, animal, has a certain finite number of heartbeats and it's, it's the same number. <gasps> just some run much faster and some wow, run slower. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And I really want to know more about this. I've just yeah. heard this recently. But so I look at the um, at hummingbird and I realize you know, it, it can notice me. You know, it'll zip away if I'm too close and stuff. But, it, I, you know, for me to talk to it or relate to it, it's in a different time. And trees are in another time. Oh, yeah. They're in this really slow time. Yeah. And, you know, how do they view us? We're like the hummingbirds to them. Yeah. So to make an instrument out of that material that really exists in another time. Wow. And bring it into our world. I mean, the, the poetry of that, I, would, I just am intrigued with that. And yeah, there are, there are trees that are 2,000 years old. I know. Yeah. And we in the West, you know, you get to go around some of these old trees and the sense of that. Even going up in the Fiamme Valley in Italy where Stradivari and Guarneri got their word, you know, they cut those trees down at 200 years, 250 years. Um, that's a long time to grow. Yeah. But something you said about your friend, sort of chasing the perfect violin, essentially, for him. Um, might be the same way that technology is trying to create, in fact, perfection. So not only may it not have the ability to mimic the sound of natural wood, but like you said, you kept saying, you know, that natural world is like people, so you have imperfection. Yeah. And, And in a way, maybe that's our great frustration. We're trying to eliminate imperfection. So every violin ever made, even the great Stradivari violin, if we really understood, has certain imperfections. There's be a note somewhere on that instrument. It's not up to the mark. <laughs> it's got its character. Right. As a player, you play around it. Mm-hmm. Or Just with like, it. Or with it. Yeah, it's like living in a family. You know how Uncle Henry is, so you got to play around that. Right. It's not going to change it. Right. But that's maybe a good thing to embrace rather than something to try to overcome yeah. with this you know, great rational intentionality, but anyhow. Right. Well, you know what happened with drum machines? Yeah. They discovered they sounded much better when they programmed some random mistakes into them. 
they started sounding human. And now you can, you know, press a button that humanizes. There's yeah, the, the humanizes. Yeah, right, that really frightens me. That yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, uh, I think it was Flat uh, Scruggs, Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs, I believe is the two. But I might have this wrong, but I've heard this story several times where they would come out of this farmhouse and one would, they'd start playing and one would go one way and the other would go the other way and they'd walk around the house, see if they're still playing in time. <gasps> and I love that idea. Were they? I, yes, apparently they had gotten it, you know, down where they, they were really, you know, and that's almost that quantum thing of the particles yeah. you know, get so separated and yet they, they know each other. Yes. That's cool stuff. Yeah, what is that well, called? It's like... Uh, uh, right, there's a... Eerie, no, there's a word like that, ghostly, ah, I can't remember. Yeah, at a distance, it's, uh, right, we'll come. Ghostly action at a distance. Spooky action ah, at a distance. That's right. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and of course I think of click tracks, and we did record this one fellow from the University of uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, Mark Katz, and he it was a great interview because his specialty, it, it, oh, I guess he did his dissertation on it, was the early technology for recording violin music. Mm. And uh, they started recording, whether it was first on the wax cylinders and it went to the platters. And these were world-renowned violinists that had finally agreed they would play for this new technology. And they and a lot of people were were perplexed and troubled by the fact that they didn't sound as good when they heard it. Yeah. It didn't sound quite in tune the way they thought they should be, and their timing wasn't really on the money. And But nobody knew that up to that point because the performance itself was the medium of the experience. Oh, right. And how recording technology itself has changed our very idea of what constitutes quality and, and desirability, the aesthetic of it. I don't know what you would want to say that because klezmer, I would think, similar to Irish music, was such a social music. Yeah, it was within a context. Yeah, it still is. Yeah, it still is. Well, klezmer originally was and still is music for dancing at celebrations, weddings, and community celebrations. Also for listening, often like in a ritual context, there are listening portions of a wedding celebration and it's really true with every kind of music that the experience of the listener hearing it live seeing hearing being in the environment it's all part of the music so when you just have a recording it eliminates I don't know, 90% of the psychological experience. It becomes a new environment and a new psychological experience. It's related, but it is by no means the same. And everybody's had experiences where they were at a show and it was incredible. And then they go back and listen to the recording and it might still have its pleasures, but it's just not the same as you had to be there. And that's part of music. It's like the allegiance of people who went and record every Grateful Dead concert. Right. <laughs> Particularly with the Grateful Dead. There was a lot going on that maybe wasn't, you know. There, there, yes, there was an <laughs> internal environment that you had to have, apparently. <laughs> Inside, between your ears, it had to be a certain environment. So anything else about the instrument and what itself has brought to you? Let me just ask you on a kind of technical thing, just briefly. What is it about playing it that you feel somebody's going to play klezmer? 
what do they need to start to understand about the instrument itself and how they're approaching it mechanically? Or Because uh, we're talking a lot about the sort of psychological relationship to the instrument, but what defines that sound, maybe? You know, this this may sound like kind of a contradiction of the whole thesis, but there is an extent to which the instrument doesn't matter that much, that it's the music in your head, it finds its way into your fingers, and your fingers and your body makes it happen on any instrument, whether it's a Stradivarius or a cigar box violin. You can make it sound like klezmer or like Irish music or like Bach. It starts in your mind's ear and your body finds a way to make whatever that instrument is do what your mind's ear wants it to do. So the, when I teach klezmer, I'm trying to get the sound in people's ears. And I give them hints, do this with your bow, do that with your fingers, but the main thing is for them to get it inside their ear and their body will find their own way on, on their instrument. There's some musical traditions that really believe this music is playing all the time. And the player approaches it and then suddenly jumps in and is playing it and then jumps out. They're, the player's a vessel. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's already going. So to say to someone, you need to you know, have that, hear it in your ear, well, that idea that there may be, in fact, a place to experience it where it starts to play in you. Yeah. And then... Uh, yeah. And I think... I have, as a musician myself, there have been moments where that's been extremely amplified, that moment where I'm playing, and suddenly almost the fire leaps up, things happen, yeah. and you know you're, you're in some other place, and, and the music's just going. Right. Also, I, I write music. and I compose. I write new klezmer tunes, and I compose other kinds of music. And when it's really happening, it does not feel like a conscious activity at all. And it's frustrating to not have control over it for that reason. Like, the tunes will just come into my head, like seemingly from someplace else. And if I'm lucky, I could capture and remember them, jot them down, sing them into a recorder. Or if I'm like doing something else, that might not happen. But it really does feel like there's some stream of something going on and I just jump into it and drink from it for a second and and then jump out again. And often it seems, I know as a writer, people talk about it's that that place between wakefulness and sleep that yeah. this often happens. And that's where you're, you know, you don't want to get out of bed and record it because it's 3 o'clock in the morning and there's a snatch of a tune or an idea for a story. Has that happened to you? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That liminal yeah. space. Again, like I tend to believe there's a scientific explanation for everything and I don't know that there is a mysterious wave of music literally out there, but I think there are conscious and unconscious parts of your mind, your brain. The brain is so complex and that that's what's going on, that there's unconscious processing going on. That's where the good stuff happens. The conscious stuff is not made for that. It's made like to do a math problem, you know. So I I think that that's what's going on, you know, the... Dream states are better for creative states and so forth. I think, you know, you learn to work with your brain that way over time through life if you're involved in music and composing. 
So your kids, do they play? Yes. One of my sons plays the piano and cello. The other one plays the drums. And you all play together? We have sometimes. Uh, I don't know how that how I don't know how interested they are in playing with their mother at this point. But when they have children of their own, I'm sure they will appreciate it. Last question: Some moment where you've played, maybe it was the location. I talked to someone recently uh, in Norway who played in a monastery, and it just left a, a real impression. Uh, someone else was in uh, South America, played in a particular place. But it could also be the, the moment, not the place. Something was going on. But a couple of those moments that have really stood out to you in all these years you've played this instrument. Let's see. Oh, man. There have been a bunch. There have been a number of really transcendent moments. When I was a teenager, I went, I would go every summer to the Apple Hill Center for Chamber Music in New Hampshire. And we would play in a barn. They have a barn there where they have meals and concerts. And the smell of the pine that the barn is made out of, or whatever the wood was, and the crickets and the fragrance of the air in the summer. And when you're a teenager, you know, you're so emotional and playing Schubert with these other kids who I just loved. Those were some really transcendent moments, playing romantic music that, that's un- unforgettable. And I was also a really big Led Zeppelin fan when I was a teenager. And later in life, I got to play with them. <laughs> so <laughs> playing Cashmere with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, I didn't interact with them much. It was part of a string orchestra that played behind the plexiglass, behind the band in stadiums. But after having been so obsessed with those songs as a teenager to actually play them with the artists, that was a super transcendent moment. Have you played by way of saying farewell to someone uh, at a memorial service or that kind of thing? Yeah. Anything about what that experience is like and what the violin brings to that? Klezmer music is music that's full of crying. And it's not sad crying necessarily. People talk about happy, sad. It's just like these moments of peak overflowing emotion. And I have played it and played more, I've played lamenting klezmer music at funerals actually, including the funeral of somebody very, very dear to me. And it was my crying. And I think it helped everybody. Well, I can't say everybody, but I think it helped people grieve in that moment too. And there's something in the violin, I think, that particularly speaks to that or allows those emotions. It's a voice. A voice, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. 
It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Before I packed up my microphone and recorder, I asked Alicia if she might play us a short melody on her violin. What I didn't expect was that she would compose the piece on the spot, which she later told me she titled Spooky Action at a Distance. for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater with additional help from our daughter, Emily McHugh. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about Rosin the Bow podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We are always on the lookout for good stories about the violin, viola, cello, and bass, instruments that have come down to us through the generations, so that we may find moments of genuine inspiration and joy in this at times troubled world. We hope you keep listening, and please make sure to tell your friends. ¶¶